I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans, through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. Well, this project could simply not happen without me talking to this man because he unlocked the gateway to the great man himself. He's been a huge part of the show, a huge supporter. It's actually bizarre that I get to talk to him as often as I do. Um, One of the world's greatest film minds now permanently uh, with New York Magazine as a writer and an editor, the great, the awesome... And I'm so honored to say, my buddy, Bilga Abiri. Bilga, welcome to another Michael Mann project. Hello. <laughs> I was Let's just so, keep doing these. <laughs> I was so happy. My heart soared so much when uh, the Blank Check podcast had you on for Black Hat. Uh, I just like, there's nothing that has ever popped up in my podcast feed that I've been more excited to listen to, <laughs> other than having you to you face-to-face with me talking in live context or talking one heat minute. Um, but no, thank you for being uh, thank you for being back for another Michael Mann thing. Can I ask you a question before we get started? Sure. Did you think I would walk away like Al Pacino off into the distance, or did you think I was like Neil McCauley in the tunnel, and I was always going to come back? What were your thoughts secretly that you may have kept from me, Bill? You were going to come back and kill Wayne Grove, <laughs> aka Last of the Mohicans. Um, no, I mean I. I well, we had discussed this, like, uh, you know, n- not on an actual podcast, but off the podcast. I remember we discussed, you know, the idea that Heat was so ideal for the kind of obsessive and minute-by-minute breakdown. Yes. And and about and we talked about how, like, there are really aren't any other movies that could potentially work that way. Yes. There may be, like, there's probably, like, a small handful of films that could potentially you know, fit that, um, you know, fit, fit, fit that approach. Yes. And, but like that conversation has stuck in my mind. So I will like randomly over the course of a day, this happens <laughs> to me. There is not a single day <laughs> during which at some point I don't like, I think to myself, um, I wonder if this movie could like <laughs> potentially be like a minute by minute podcast. It's, like, you know, like, and and it'll be the r- most random films, you know. Um, yeah, like, like I was watching. I had to review Good Boys. Right? Yes, <laughs> like, yes. 
halfway through Good Boys, I was like, I wonder if you could one day do a minute-by-minute podcast of Good Boys. <laughs> That's never... Like, it's just like... It's like an like it's like a brain worm. Like I can't stop thinking about. It. <laughs> I and it's so heartening. Why I'm cacking myself on the other end is because it's so heartening to hear you say that. Because so many people, just by virtue of the fact that you know I was you know the host of One Hit Minute, a lot of people say, "Oh, well, this movie, X movie," and I and I won't yeah. I won't I won't drag as many movies as I have to people in person. But I just go no. <laughs> I shake my head. I go no. It wouldn't. I go go back and watch it again. And I, and I, Everybody's mentioned... convinced their favorite movie would do that. Would would be like would 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 fit this model, and it, it's it's not true. No, you know, I have many not. favorite movies who would abs- that would absolutely not fit this model. But no. there's something about Heat that just is just perfect it's, for the it's, approach. It's, it's in the sweet spot. And so while while conceiving of this mini project, this new expanded mini series, it wasn't about saying that Last of the Mohicans isn't a great film, but it was trying to focus attention on going. What is so drastically different that we can have different conversations about about a Michael Mann movie that really haven't happened on One Heat Minute? And the overwhelming thing for me became, you know, out of his entire film film filmography, is Mohicans is so different just in in setting and in approach than really any of his contemporary films because it feels like a last big bombastic studio movie. Although Heat is equal to that size in bombast it's contemporary and really slavishly contemporary um uh, at the time and in a, in a way almost cutting edge and you go back to mohicans and it has absolutely got that cutting edge ethos it's absolutely uh, you know deeply authentic it's it's so rigorously produced but also it is so large and this ending feels it's one of the great endings of all time it's so percussive it's so soaring it's so incredibly cinematic but it's it, it kind of allows this big exposition epic to happen before it, and then it just strips it away into this magnificent thing. And I just, it's one of those movies. This is the first Michael Mann movie I watched, and so, uh, and it's the movie that I think more people I've spoken to, maybe in Australia, Mohicans has had a lot of had a big playtime on like free to air television and things like that. So whenever I talk about Heat, if they haven't seen Heat, and I say, have you seen Last of the Mohicans? They know who Michael Mann is. And mm. so I, I feel like it was a good it was a good conversation starter to get into and and I I just love the ending of this movie I think it's magnificent. It's um yeah yeah I mean it's actually if if I think about it I think it's probably it might be the first Michael Mann film I saw as well um simply because there were, I mean there weren't that many Michael Mann films before that <laughs> I mean I, I Thief had come out I mean I was too young when Thief came out um and I hadn't seen it yet. I can't remember. It's possible I'd seen Manhunter, um, and obviously I, I, you know, watched Miami Vice. But you know, this was kind of like the first inkling for a lot of people that, oh, the the guy who like made Miami Vice makes movies too, which is funny because like he didn't direct <laughs> a single episode of Miami Vice. No. He was just kind of like the executive producer style guru. Um, but um, <laughs> but the. Uh, yeah, and I think a lot of people were surprised by it. But I remember I saw this film opening day. Um, like I traveled from New Haven to New York, which is like a two-hour train ride, just to see this movie opening day. So like, like I clearly had some desire to see this movie. Like it wasn't like oh I'll go check out a film. Like there were plenty of movies near me that I could have gone to see. But I was like no no no, no. I am going to travel to New York City 
which like I was in college, so I'm like, you know, <laughs> 18, 19 years old. Um, I'm going to go travel to New York City on my own to go see this movie, Last of the Mohicans. I think it was also because I was a big, like I was, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis had just won an Oscar for My Left Foot, and I'd, I'd seen him in a couple of films, so I was obviously very excited about him. But, um, but you know, like I'm, like I was thinking just just after watching it again, I was just thinking back to I like went to New York to see this movie, um, <laughs> and I loved it. And 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 um, what's also interesting is that there, even though it was a it was a pretty decent hit, um, a lot of people thought this was a terrible film. Like a lot of people did not like this movie. Really? And like in the last ten years, I don't think I've met a single person that doesn't like Last of the Mohicans. So I think it's possible that. Natural selection has done away with it, <laughs> but like, but it, it is, you know, it wasn't it wasn't widely beloved. Um, the way some of his, I mean, not, all of his films have had kind of weirdly contentious responses, but um, you know, it wasn't like a lot of people thought it was a little silly. They thought it was melodramatic. All it, it was actually in some ways it, it followed the trajectory of a Michael Mann release, which is. All the things that people criticized about it are like the things that now make it one of the greatest movies ever. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think uh, anyway, I, I I love this movie, and one of the one of the reasons I really wanted to do this podcast um, of yours was because I thought to myself, oh my god, this is a great chance, like I get to watch Last of the Mohicans again. Um, and I watch this movie probably once a year at this point, but um, and I'd seen it not too long ago. But I was like, no, 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 I'm going to watch it again. I know this is like only about the last 12 minutes, but I am going to sit down and watch Last of the Mohicans from beginning to end because it is just like a machine that produces pure joy. Oh, my God. Uh, and it's so, so lean. It's so lean. And it's it's that's what strikes me every time I watch it. It is so lean and so sharp and... For a guy whose movies can be long and languid and, and take a lot of time for you to ruminate in spaces, like it doesn't do any of that. It is you. You are on. You're on the go. It's you know. And conversely, you know, we're talking about the last twelve minutes. It's only eleven minutes before Magua is tomahawking a British officer in the face in this movie. Oh, like yeah. it is so fast. Like things get on so quick that you're just like, wow. This this whole establishment of characters these trappers going through their philosophy you know this this adopted you know this lovely little mm -hmm. adopted family unit the 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 different political structures hierarchically with monarchy battling against this new colonial you know emerging democracy all these things the lighting the gorgeous composition it's just like oh, it's just all set up and then it's just chaos it turns it on its head and you're just running for the rest of the movie it's it's so yeah. brilliantly paced yeah, well, and also, I mean, even just the very, I mean, the very first scene is them running through the forest, oh, right? Yes. You know, I'm chasing that that deer, and um, and and I remember at the time, I'm after I saw it, I thought to myself, this movie is like Star Wars for colonial history books. <laughs> right? Like it has the, it like it's like really bold strokes. It's very clean lines, right? It's like here are the good guys, here are the bad guys. You know, enough nuance so that it's not just all black and white, but here's the situation he, he here are the various pressure points that are going to cause problems for people here's the romance and it just it just moves and the emotions are big even the structure is kind of like star wars right it's like it's, the, it's the, you know there's like kind of this like we start in media res even though <laughs> it's not you know i mean they're they're just hunting but 
Um, but everything kind of like you're sort of in the middle of stuff when it starts. Yes. And then just moves along. You've got the reluctant hero, the damsel in distress, if you will. But she's like headstrong. There's like great chemistry. Um, you know, there is the bad guy who's actually working for someone else. So he's like, you know, he's like, like Magua's like Darth Vader. But like there's complexity to him. But he's ruthless. Like he's he's one of these characters that's just gonna like haunt your dreams. Wes Studi, um, one of the in the conversation for the title of best villain ever in this movie. It's incredible, and and he, you know, and I, this is like one of his. First, I don't know if this was his first role, but it's one of his first roles. Yes. I mean, he's but he's but he's a guy who like comes out of nowhere um, and just is like. I mean, he's a star. You make, you know, after this movie, he's a star. Even though, like, he's not a star star, but it's like, he's a star, you yeah. know? How do you like, act- after this, every time I see him in a movie, I'm like, it's Magua. <laughs> that, that's, and he's, he's cur- both cursed and blessed. And uh, what I'm going to mention in every podcast since I found out that is part of the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans is that Wes Studi is going to be honored by the Academy of um, uh, Arts and Motion Picture Sciences uh, with an honorary Oscar this year. That's so, great. And, That's great. And I can't wait for just another future re-release of The Last of Mohicans with Academy Award winners Daniel Day-Lewis and Wes Studi. Like, please, please, there's a re-release that's coming. Maybe it's the 20th anniversary in a couple of years' time, but there has to be a, a revised cover with both, you know, a guy who dwarfs Daniel Day-Lewis. That's, not an, that's no mean feat. I don't think it's ever been done in any other Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis movie. <laughs> No, I mean, and it's, um, yeah, and, and he's, he's, you know, he brings such, like, it's weird, because the character is obviously, you know, like, you know, monstrous in so many ways, but he actually brings, like, this weird humanity to it, and he manages to, like, you, like, he makes you really kind of think about Magua, and you, you actually feel for him. I mean, there's that bit of backstory that they, you know, brief backstory, which, of course, you know, all villains get, well, you know, they, they killed my family. So now I'm now I'm now I've got a death wish and, you know, I want to kill everybody. Um, you know, every every thriller has that. But he actually like sells you know, it. brings real humanity. He sells it. You're yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Like Magua kind of becomes over the course of the movie, like you kind of you 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 really connect with his rage. Um and uh, and it's just you know it's just beautifully done. Um, I interviewed him uh, a couple of years ago, oh, and so it's good. funny. He's he's like the, he's like such a soft spoken guy. He's just a really gentle, kind, soft spoken guy. Um, and you know he's 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 given tons of great performances since as well. Yeah, the last one I saw him in was Hostiles. He's terrific. He's absolutely terrific in it. Yeah, he's great in Hostiles. And again, another um, another big character actor, like a big blustery Bale, you know, performance. And then here's where Sudi just like crushing in every scene that he's in. And yeah. You're just like, it must suck to be like a big, well-known actor. And they're like, who, who who's the um, character actor playing this? Role? Oh, where's Sudi? Okay, cool. Well, I guess I'm just gonna look yeah, like nothing yeah. when he's on the screen. With yeah, <laughs> and that's I mean, it's it's also like Bale has worked with Sudi before, right? Because they were in the New World together. Yes. Um, and uh, so, and it, what I mean, New World as well. Like West Duty has not one of the main parts in it, but like steals every scene he's in. Yes, yes, you absolutely. Um, yeah. So and, and also, 
I mean, the West Studio actually said he's like, I never really saw Magua as a villain. I mean, that's kind of the way they always, you know, you always have to approach your villain. Like if you're playing a villain, you always have to kind of get into their mindset. But you know, like Magua's right. Like Magua <laughs> is ultimately correct about everything that's going to happen. Um, yeah. You know, the, 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 and you know what's so funny is. So many t-shirt ideas from this show already. Magua is right is definitely my favorite uh, so far um, because I, I genuinely feel, Bilga, like when I first watched him, he frightened me um, and he was so magnetic and like just scary and he could just do things wordlessly that were so terrifying. But the more I watch this movie, the more I identify with him because I, you just yeah. you can see that he's taking a completely inverse approach to what, you know, Hawkeye, Daniel Day-Lewis as Nathaniel Poe is doing, which is saying, look, no, we need to maintain these cultures. And, you know, even though I'm a white person, I've been adopted and I can see that we need to sort of maintain our cultures in the face of these colonial superpowers. And Malgo's like, no, you're all going to die. The only way that we can survive is to adopt these horrible behaviors, despite how deplorable we may feel that they are. This is the way that we're going to survive. And that's it. And that's genuinely their battle. And like you said, unlike you know we see it in a lot of characters and i think in the very best villains that's the kind of underscore argument is like they're kind of right and it's and 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 that discourse is like when i think about kill like killmonger and black panther like the discourse is well killmonger's right and it's like well magua's right like that that, i guess that's a testament of a great villain discourse is that you're like no he's actually it's not quite thanos is right that's a bit crazy but it's like it's like killmonger's right like he's he's right about you know, being an isolationist community and, and not protecting your own and, and, and that sort of thing. Like, he's right. I mean, who knows? In 20 years, we might be saying Thanos is right. That's the thing. <laughs> you know, you never you never know at the time whether they're right. It's only later you're like, oh, right, right. You know, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, no. And, he, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. They're all fantastic. Um, and the film is just, you know, all those big emotions, the the. I mean, it's so rare that you get a film that has, you know, this isn't even my favorite Michael Mann film. My favorite Michael Mann film is still Heat. Um, This is probably number two or three. Um, But the thing that every time I watch it, I think to myself, like, this is a film of superlatives. Like, it has the best score. It has the best cinematography. It has the best performance. It has possibly the greatest on-screen chemistry you've ever seen it has Mm. the best action sequence it really is it's kind of one of these like like why can't every movie be this good (laughs) every time i see it i'm kind of like why can't every movie be this good you know and nailing it on every level and they're in a north carolina heat they're in a like that it's completely sweltering it's a period piece that had been made to death so it's got these ingredients it's with a, a filmmaker who's never done anything on this scale. It's got all these ingredients that in a Hollywood trade sense that we'd be writing up, you'd be writing like, this is bad. Like this is all going to go badly, no matter how, how much you do. And every single time I watch it, I have that same feeling as well. I just love it. It's just so good across the board. Everything is good. And another, you talk about redemptive characters, a character that I never liked, but now I unabashedly love is Stephen Waddington. He is so, so wonderful as Duncan, Major Duncan Haywood. And he really, his beautiful turn of translation and decision that triggers the final 12 minutes of this really wonderful period epic is something that I've now watched so many times in preparation for this new show. And I'm just like, 
I'm just flabbergasted at his range in this movie. He goes from that sort of dick to sort of like understanding and he goes through these layers and, 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 and into torture and then to have the wherewithal to make this beautiful choice at the end and just deliver it with such matter-of-factness. That's this movie so matter-of-fact and I just, I think he's just magnificent in this movie. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's I mean, he starts off the film heartbroken. Yes. You know, I mean, he, he, there, there's real complexity in the way he's drawn because... You know, we see, I mean, the, the first things we see of him is he's getting upset at the other, you know, British officer for, like, you know, kind of acceding to the colonial's demands. Um, but then he's also being rejected by Madeline Stowe and not being rejected in this way. I mean, he's not like a jerk. He's just kind of like, like by the, you know, by kind of the, the mores of his day. He's just like, what the hell? He's, he's a good-looking guy, you know. He's like, he's like, I mean, he's a good-looking guy. He's a British officer, you know. Like, and she's just like, she just doesn't want it. And and he's he's heartbroken. And he and the character, you know, the actor plays him in a very tender way. So you you really do kind of feel for him in that moment, and you feel for her as well. Um. And you know, when you create that kind of complexity right out of the gate, you can then really play with a character throughout. So at every point, he's actually, like, Duncan is always surprising. Yes. Because we know he has the capacity for, for, for love and tenderness and and a kind of loyalty. And we know he also has the capacity for, for being very much a, 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 you know, kind of a straight arrow by the book kind of guy. So at every point, it feels like you really don't know what he's going to do, right? Because yeah. there's, a, you know, that, that scene, um, it's really surprising, actually, that scene where, um, you know, where they come and take Hawkeye away, or, or when, when, sorry, when um, they're arguing with, uh, you know, Colonel Monroe, and there's this question of, um, you know, the, 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 the family that they've seen massacred, and Hawkeye is trying to tell them, look, this is a war party. And um, and they ask Duncan what he thinks, and Duncan basically lies. Um, like, that's surprising. Yes. Because you, by that point, he's kind of been with them, and you, you, you sort of, you're starting to like the guy. And... And you're just like, oh, sh- oh, fuck you, Duncan. Like, why did you... But you know why he did it. You totally know. You know? Yes. Um... And and so you start to engage with him the way you would engage with an actual human being. Yes. And that's fascinating. And that's actually what's well, one of the things that Michael Mann does really well, even in something like this, where it's almost like cartoonish. Yes. Not cartoonish isn't the word, but like everything is kind of broad strokes. He still knows to bring in that kind of complexity so that at every moment you're kind of engaging with these people as people. Yes. And 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 you, and you, and you need to because and he creates that pivot with Duncan creates such a massive like oh shit moment over and over again when you watch this movie because you feel like oh well there's these three trappers and they sort of skate through this war they are essentially unscathed and they and in this moment it's like oh no now it's real duncan is being burned alive hawkeye is having to mercy kill him and alice is gone we don't know what's going to happen she's with a war party uncas is tearing up that hill Oh, it wouldn't be oh, it wouldn't cats. it wouldn't be a podcast without Vilgus Cat making an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the best. Um, but 
Uncas is staring up the hill and it's like the stakes of this journey actually now come to bear and it, the collective weight of all the stakes and everything that really happens is just all here. Like the death of the villain, the death of three of the three of the main characters in the movie yeah. are all happening in this concentrated final stanza. Like what, what are your thoughts from a pure, like, uh, you know, a highlight perspective? Like how do you rate this? Oh, here she goes. Hello. <laughs> here she is. Here she is. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on that that ending? That that how, how it escalates, how it soars, how it brings in together all the threads and themes of the story. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'd love to hear yeah. what your thoughts are. Well, it is it. You know, I remember when I when I when I did like the the Bam interview with Michael Mann, I actually said something like, "Oh, it's one of the strangest endings I've ever seen to a movie, or strangest final sequences of an of any movie I've ever seen." And he corrected me. He's like. It's not that strange, you know, and, and I think, but I think what it is, is it's not strange, but it is extreme in this way, because, you know, the big climactic battle of, of any movie, you know, it is less dialogue driven than the other parts of a movie, right? Yes. But, but he goes in that, like, kind of, like, like, he's Michael Mann, he commits, so nobody says a single goddamn thing <laughs> during his final 12 minutes, right? So, and it becomes... And all throughout, the film has kind of juggled this, like, sort of, for lack of a better word, music video quality. That's a terrible word. But this, like, it's like the cinematic quality where there are periods where you're just kind of watching music and images and editing kind of interact. Um, but, um, and, and then, you know, scenes where you're kind of getting, like, you know, historical context or character interactions or, you know, negotiations about, like, whether colonials can leave the fort and stuff like that. I mean, he, he, he does all that with, with, a, with, with great drama and great flair. But the film really kind of juggles between sort of this authenticity and this kind of gr grander sort of melodramatic quality. And, but because he juggles them so well, by the end, suddenly he can kind of launch into this great 12-minute, basically, musical sequence. Um... And, you know, we're totally pulled along by it. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's obviously beautifully put together and everything, but it's like, you know, but it's, it's, it has a weird dreamlike quality in yes. part because nobody's really saying anything, but well, also because of the way it's edited together. Um, you know, the, the way that it, it, like motion is cut into it so that, you know, you'll have, suddenly something like a, you'll have this weird pause in the action and then suddenly the music will start back up and suddenly Hawkeye is running with guns or suddenly uh, Chingachgook is coming. Like there is this weird relentless quality to it. Yes. Uh, and also the, the way the, the way the performances work. I mean, the, you know, Magua actually, it, it, you know, there's this weird, otherworldly quality to West Duty's performance during this part of the film where he has, because remember up until this point, he has really been seeing himself as a Huron. Yes. Right. And he's just been rejected by the Huron. Um, you know, like this is, you know, like his identity has in some ways been shattered. And so there's this weird kind of disaffected, you know, like expression on his face throughout. Um, 
you know, he's 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 angry at the beginning of the sequence when he's kind of telling off the Huron leader, um, uh, when he's telling off Sachem. Um, but then, you know, all and, throughout this... And cursing him out in French, which I think is even... Yeah, yeah. That I think that that's uh, even more telling that he's like not even going to yeah. curse him out in Huron. I'm going to curse you out in French before I get yeah. out of here. Yeah, but after that, there's kind of this weird ethereal quality to his performance, like almost like nothing matters anymore, right? And that you know until that moment when yeah when he tries to get uh, Jody May uh, when he tries to get Alice to come back when she's on the edge after he's killed um, Uncas, you know that great back and forth where you know she's in slow motion and there's like little water dripping and she's got this like you know she's ready to go she's ready to you know kind of jump off into the abyss and for that little moment you know magua has this expression on his face like he's trying to figure out what to do here and up until this moment alice has been this character who's been very um you know she's very dependent Right, she's very dependent on her sister. She's always kind of cowering, and and obviously Cora is very protective of her. Um, but here's the moment when she kind of steps out there, and she's by herself, and it's one of the few sh shots where she's alone in the frame, and she's looking at him, and she's looking down, and she's she's making a decision completely on her own. And after so much of the film, kind of fleeing from danger, she's basically ready to kill herself. And it's in that moment you realize like Magua suddenly has like this weird kind of respect for her yes. and he kind of beckons her to like, he, he wants her to come back because there's this weird little moment where you're, where you, I can kind of imagine Magua thinking, wait, wait, like, like I kind of <laughs> like this girl. Like, like I kind of <laughs> like her. Like I actually, you know, like he kind of like, wait, 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 like we can make this work. <laughs> um, and I just that that's that's such a beautiful, complex moment. I mean, there's so many emotions going there. It's 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 so simply put together. It's just you know two shots back and forth. But there's so many emotions in that scene that you know every time I watch it, I see something new in it, something new in her expression, something new in his expression. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is the part where the movie kind of really sort of adopts a bit of that Miami Vice aesthetic, again for lack of a, a better expression. But, <laughs> You know, like you have like slow motion people falling off and, you know, I mean, um, you know, whenever someone falls off the cliff, they do it in slow motion. Right. And it's kind of this weird, poetic little little moment in this film that, you know, has been so relentless for so long. So, like, I guess maybe part of what I'm saying, I'm like, I'm like going on, but I guess maybe one of the strange things about this last 12 minutes is even though it's riveting and it's like the most action, it's in some ways the most action-packed part of the movie it's the climactic part of the movie it's also in some ways the slowest part of the movie like it's yeah. it's the most dreamlike part of the movie and that's what's that's that's what kind of sets it apart because there are other scenes i mean there are huge battle scenes and just like scenes of daniel day lewis like you know with his teeth jutting out running through fields like just slaughtering everybody like those scenes are more kind of pronounced actiony um or like chase scenes but here it's like everything is kind of happening with this weird deliberate pace, possibly because it's like all time to the music as well. But but like it's actually not like action packed in that way. It's not frantic. It's no. it's like like destiny is kind of just pulling these people at this point, you know? Yeah, I think I, I think 
some of those other scenes, you talk about this being a dream, but I think of some of those other scenes as being like nightmarish. So like yeah, yeah, that, yeah. when Margot's stalking through the, the forest at, in, on either side of the clearing um, and you've got the guys all sort of stalking up with him and you've got this British regiment that's all pouring out of the fort and that first guy streams out of yeah. the, the woods and like starts clobbering someone. That's terrifying because, like, they're, oh, yeah, being, yeah. Cause they're being watched, and so that that unfolds rel- uh, relentlessly, and and it's pure chaos. But it feels like a nightmare, and I love that you said that you could, you know you contrast it in this that it is like a dream because it's this this passage through, and there's something that with Michael Mann when people pass away that he he kind of has a like a bit more of like he's like a contemplative Peckinpah in a way because Peckinpah mm-hmm. like wants to show it for all its like he wants to show people being ragdolled through the air and and death in its most sort of explosive way in, in big slow motion you know double barrel shotgun to the chest buckshot um see you later but michael mann's like no i'm going to show that we're a bit more lyrical a bit more um uh, you know and, and even with chingachikuk who basically says no words he gets a slow motion scream like you don't even you're not even allowed to hear him scream out for his son you hear yeah. you hear hawkeye and Corey gets the this. There's a choice, an editorial choice, which I can't wait to talk to Mister Man about. Which is, Madeline Stowe gets like a half scream. It's not really yeah. a scream. It's like this guttural, like it's almost like the microphone only turns on for a fleeting second as she's turning her head. Yeah. And and in that moment, it's it's so powerful to have that choice of like her have like a half scream, blurred sound slowed down, doesn't actually really feel real. Yeah, it's a uh, it's so beautiful. It, 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 it also works so well because of all the work that's been done throughout the film because she and Alice are always together. Yes. Right? And she she's so protective of Alice throughout this movie. And remember, there's they've also had this like traumatic moment where their father was killed in this like horrible way. I mean, Margot pulled the guy's fucking heart out. Um, and... Like they've been like they've been like the characters have had like those two characters have had the trauma that like movies will allow them to have. Like they're not like one of them is not supposed to die at this. Like the young sister is not supposed to die. No. Of course, in the book, I think like Cora dies. But yeah, you know, like, but like at this point, so much has happened and they've been through so much that like. I mean, obviously the film has to cut to Madeline Stowe and she's great and it's a great cut, but it's like, even if the movie didn't cut to Madeline Stowe, we would be like, oh my God, oh my God, poor Cora, like what's, what is, what is this going to do to her? Yes. You know? Um, she's been carrying the weight from this moment since her father's death because Hawkeye saw what happened. Like, hey, you know, when he whispers in her ear, it's, it's not quite lost in translation. But you kind of know, like, hey, I saw Margot cut your dad's heart out and eat it, like, basically, because that's as matter-of-fact as he is. And she's had to carry that weight, other than just saying to Alice, yeah, dad's dead, you know, like, you know, dad passed away. Yeah, and then, I mean, and also just the way that, um, I mean, you know, Uncas's death is also so kind of, well, it's, it's, it's really, you know, horrific, but it's also... You know, those two confrontations with Magua, Uncas, and then later Chingachgook, you know, they're framed against the the sort of the background of, you know, the the forests and the mountains. And this is the thing that Michael Mann does so well. 
Um, you know, and he d- did it all over Heat, obviously, especially in the final scenes and everything. But like, he he he's able to kind of preserve the, you know, the the the, the narrative importance of the moment and the urgency of the moment, while also shooting it in such a way that like it achieves the level of myth, right? And yes. so you're watching it. So you're not just watching Uncas get killed by um, by Magua, and you're not also you know watching Chingachgook kill Magua. You feel like you're watching a battle for like the country's soul, right? Yes. Because it's like because you know the, he has this great canvas against which he's framed them, and they're sort of standing there like two sort of pillars. And it's like it's like we're almost like it's like pick your side, you know, pick your fighter. But also like pick your ideology, um, and it and it's it's really you know and remember I mean I mean Chingachgook is played by Russell Means, one of the great Native American activists. Like the fact that you know I mean like the, you know, man is casting people that like you know generally you know like people didn't cast in movies. Like yeah, he's, he's like he's like he's oh who, so who, who, who's the guy that stood up to the FBI? Yeah, I want him. I want him yeah. to take the reins as the actual hero of this story. You know, I think I, I've mentioned a few times that Matt Zolazite says whoever says the line of the, the title of the movie in the movie is who the movie is about. Um, and and it's funny when you, I don't necessarily agree with that, but like with this, it's like, yeah, it's kind of Chingachgook's movie. He's like, he bookends the film. He bookends the philosophy of the film. And a massive tragedy for him is that, and what's the real shame about these, you know, two Titanic, you know, figures battling for the soul of the United States is that when they're fighting colonial invaders, when they're fighting off the French, when they're fighting off the British, there's not the stakes there. It's here now that they've been turned against each other because they've Mm -hmm. kind of been ideologically brainwashed to go, I've got to go this way, I've got to go that way, and it's pitting them against each other. Even in Magua's dispatch of Uncas, he's doing it like a robot, but he takes absolutely no pleasure. In my mind, he takes no satisfaction in doing it. And in fact, he feels kind of disgusted with himself. He has a disgusted look on his face. I don't think it's just about, about Uncas dying. I think it's also about what he's had to do. It's like, I've just had to gut this guy. I'm doing it in autopilot. Ugh. Like, yeah. why am I even doing this at this point? Like, what does it even mean? Yeah, and at that point, like I said, I mean, you know, he's, 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 he's a man without a tribe. He's a man without an identity at that point. Mm. And he's got you know, in some ways, nothing to lose. But um, but there's this kind of real sort of existential despair to what's happening to him. Um, and, uh, you know, and yeah, I mean, you you make a good point. Like, Chingach, like, by the end of the movie, Daniel Lewis isn't really doing much. I mean, like, he's, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's like, yeah, sure, he's, he's, he's shooting down completely, you know, faceless ca- characters. Um, but, like, the two heroes of the, fi- the finale... Of our Uncas and Chingachgook, right? I mean, yeah. Uncas who goes out, gets himself killed, and then Chingachgook who comes out and, you know, and and avenges his son. Um, and it's not, and Chingachgook gets the last word. I mean, by that point, Daniel Day Lewis is kind of a bystander, you know. Yeah. Yes. And I guess you know, never. Have you read the novel? I haven't read the novel. I, no, I feel like I, I should. I've I've never read it, and I, I've heard that it's like for for American students particularly, it's like. Um, or, or if you're doing any kind of literary studies, it's one of the like a foundational novel because it's like it builds a foundational sort of foundational myth of America, but that is inherently biased. And so people study it to go like, look, this is a guy who created a foundational myth, but yeah. it's also extremely limiting 
you know, and it's and it's and it like, create it, it's a stereotype creator. It's so infectiously consumed that it created stereotypes that years later people were still trying to examine and unpack and and break through. Um, but no, oh, I, yeah. I I haven't I haven't read it. I haven't read it, and I've only ever seen um, the the nineteen thirty one Last of the Mohicans sort of in clip form like we're hearing about Michael Mann seeing that and being so blown away and taken with it. And you can see some of the, you know, the big swashbuckling sweeping elements of that movie that really resonate into this, but it's so drastically different that it feels, it almost feels weird to watch it. It's like, this is, it's like they took the template. I don't know whether it's, I don't know if it's you watch the French version of true lies and then you watch James Cameron's true lies and you're like, this can't be the same. This can't be the same movie. It can't be the same idea. It's so different. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I haven't read the novel. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those novels, it's like, it's foundational, but I think foundational kind of in name only. I mean, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there are places out there where, you know, students still read Last of the Mohicans, but it's not really like, it's not a book you read in high school anymore. You know, it might have been once upon a time, but um, but now it's kind of, you know, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin or something like that. <laughs> yes. Like books that like once upon a time were probably seen as not necessarily progressive, but like really expanding your knowledge, but and, and your sense of the world. But today would probably be seen as limiting it. Yes. Um, but at the same time, you know, I mean, James Fenmore Cooper wrote tons of these. And, and one of the things I always wonder is like, obviously, back then, this wasn't something that I, I think too many people thought about. But like, Today, if Michael Mann had made *A Last of the Mohicans*, there would be a plan in place to make like all the leather stocking tales. Like, <laughs> yes. You know, the, yeah. You know, James Fenimore Cooper extended cinematic universe. Can you right? imagine? Warner Brothers would never have let him make another movie until he put one of these other leather stocking tales in the can. Like it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it just wouldn't have happened. It would have gone. This is so well. This is the foundational. You know, we need the we need the Mohican cinematic universe, the MCU yeah. before the, the before the MCU. Um, yeah, yeah, he should do a sequel. <laughs> he could do a sequel. They're all, you know. You you've spoken to Mister Man more than like almost anyone, and like you said, I, I think we might have started talking about it when we were, were when before we were recording. But it's like he's a filmmaker that has danced with different topics and dance with different film ideas for many times and they sort of float in and out of you know his his potential pre-production slate without ever kind of locking into certain things um is do you think do you think there's another period film in michael mann in 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 2019 like this like this kind of thing that could be made well i mean i think um well he he's he's wanted to make this movie agincourt um for years and i think it's still you know an active project that that he would love to make i don't know that it's um you know i don't know that it's going to happen but um but no i mean he's he's been attached to, to various period projects i mean there was um gates of fire yes. uh was a which was like a battle of thermopylae movie um that you know he developed for a while that he worked on for a while and it looked like it was going to happen and then it didn't happen um so period you know, like, I mean, period, I mean, you know, the, the, the Ferrari movie was going to be period too. Like, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, there's always period, but, but in terms of like, kind of, you know, real period, like historical, uh, you know, adventure kind of films, um, you know, it's like there, there's still these, 
I think, ideas in his head and that he'd like or projects that he'd like to do. I guess the question is, you know, cost and the extent to which these things are seen as financially viable these days. Um, you never well, know. That, that doesn't matter for Netflix and Amazon, Bill. We've seen this time after time. We just need Michael Mann. We need some of these older directors to just get get some of that Amazon money like they threw at the Lord of the Rings, get some of that money like Netflix throws at some of their original content and, you know, unleash yeah. Michael Mann to make whatever he wants for the next, as many years as he wants to work. Let's give him all the cash that we can. Well, yeah, obviously. It is, I mean, he, he did he did really, you know, because he kind of has this reputation as a crime auteur, you know, you forget how, that's the thing, it's like Last of the Mohicans is one of those films, a lot of people love it, but a lot of people forget that it's a Michael Mann movie. Right, you know, you're, you're like talking about Michael. Oh yeah, 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 the Heat and you know the Insider and Collateral and Miami Vice and you know, but like you forget. Oh right, he fucking made Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> you know, um, and he made it yeah. in that run. He made it Mohicans, yeah. Heat, The Insider, um, and then Ali. And then Ali. I mean, it's, it it is actually. I mean, it's a great run. It's a great run that like basically begins with Mohicans. Yeah. Um, and. And it's a great run that, like, you, you know, we we are only, like, belatedly realizing that the run actually lasted longer than we thought it did, right? Yeah. Because it was like, right, Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, and then pff, Ali, you know, and then, like, yeah. that doesn't work. But then, like, now now we're all, like, now we all watch Ali and I'm like, oh, right, right. It, it, it's, again, that, that phenomenon of the thing that you thought was the problem with the movie is actually the thing that's brilliant about the movie. Like, <laughs> I watched Ali and I was like... There's no story here. It just feels like a bunch of fragments. I feel like I'm watching like, you know, an essay about Ali, and, and like, and now I'm able to look back on it. Oh right, I'm watching an essay. I'm watching an essay on Ali. I love it. It's exactly yeah, what I, I want. A biopic. I didn't want a biopic. This is what like this is. This, this is, is better the, like, than a. This is better than a biopic. It's 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 better oh, yeah, because yeah. it's it because it because it just chooses to just drop you into two segments of his life. Like the yeah. glory days and that last that last grab that last yeah. of moment in his life and then he but, but but then also he goes from Ali to Collateral and he goes yeah. Ali Collateral and then Miami Vice which we all have, you know yeah. and, then, and then Miami Vice which like you know everybody hated except that it was a masterpiece you know like <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so it's a great run and and like you know people. And obviously, I mean, the, there are those of us who are still like very much like I love Public Enemies. I love Black Hat, obviously. But I'm willing to concede that with Public Enemies and Black Hat, he he loses the audience in certain ways, maybe. Um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see if, if time is kinder to those movies. Um, but like right through Miami Vice, I mean, that's a that's an incredible run. Mm. Um, but we forget that it starts with Last of the Mohicans, you know. Well, I think we can unequivocally say now is a great way to end because if I have anything to do with it and if you have anything to do with it, Mr. Bill Garibiri, we won't let people forget that the run starts with Last of the Mohicans <laughs> and it starts in the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans in this beautiful, dreamy, masterful music video. I don't think it's an insult. I think, it's, it's like, I think people call it an insult, but it's like that music video aesthetic, that perfect synergy of music and image. That's cinema. Thank you so much for doing this. 
Thank you thank so you. Much, thank you so much for being a part of it. It's a, it's a, it's awesome to have you back um, doing this. And I I did promise myself that I wouldn't do it. And what happened when I when I broke this story that 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 the the last twelve minutes of the Mohicans was a project that was happening and people like yourself were involved. It immediately turned to what is the next Michael Mann film you have to do? What are you going to do? So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you free reign. What's the next one that I should do, Bilga, if I was going to do one? If you were going to do another Michael Mann podcast? Yes. Um, I mean, okay, so, so, so this, is not, this is not a Michael Mann movie. Um, and I'm not saying you should do this. But I actually think somebody should do a podcast devoted to Miami Vice, the series. The series, because yeah. That, I mean, and, 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 it's, I mean, and Michael Mann, I think, is only really involved in the first two seasons. And then, you know, and then it's other people. But that series is, and, and like a lot of those episodes are not good. I mean, they're, they're like, you know, objectively terrible. <laughs> in certain I mean, it's not like... It's not, I'm not. I'm not one of these people who thinks like the Miami Vice TV show from NBC was like some you know pinnacle of television drama or anything like that. But there's so much to talk about in every single one of those fucking shows. <laughs> like I watch them even now, and I'm just like, like, like I could I could do a whole lecture on you know individual episodes of that show, even if the episode itself isn't good. And also the guest stars are insane. Like it's Frank Zapp playing a, a drug dealer. You know, it's like I mean, it's just countless i mean between the guest stars and then like younger actors who are like oh by the way that guy grew up to be liam neeson you know like yeah. all these and, people oh by the way there's there's john mcclain diehard like five minutes yeah. before he was john mcclain he's in an episode of miami vice yeah i mean it's it's so many of these like there are all these little stories to tell in that in the run of that series and i think there would probably be fascinating back you know you know background stories to tell about like where these things come from and then there's like the episode like the two episodes that later become kind of the the template for the miami vice movie like there's all these little things in there it just goes on and on and on and on um and you know like it's a i mean i i I mean it goes without saying i would listen to such a podcast (laughs) Um, (laughs) but again that's not a you know that's not a last you know it's not a michael mann movie um so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to your question is. Um, I mean, you know, Miami Vice the movie obviously is something a lot of us could talk up talk about for 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 uh, you know, forever. Well, well, that is um that 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 is interesting. That is interesting. You say that. I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave it right there and just let people ruminate on whether I would do another one or not. But while I do that. There's plenty of great podcasting that you can listen to. If you've listened to this show, you can listen to The Take, my new weekly show on flicks.com.au. You can listen to Travis Woods' wonderful show I'm producing with him on Inherent Vice, Paul Thomas Anderson's film called Increment Vice, which is out very soon. And you can also listen to Josie and the Podcats, a special six-episode miniseries on the incredible 2001 satire. I think it's like this is Spinal Tap for tween girls Um, and uh, it's wonderful so I hope you guys get a chance to listen to that but until then the great the awesome Bill Gabriel thank you for doing this thank you Huge thank you to Mr. Bilger Abiri there. Uh, Bilger, B-I-L-G-E-E-B-I-R-I. 
on Twitter. And uh, he's an amazing editor and writer, and you can check out all of his wonderful reviews and features on Vulture or New York Magazine in print if you love the tactile. Um, but as with a lot of the episodes of The Last Old Minutes of the Mexicans, I have two wonderful guests. And the next one is coming up. He is a freelance film critic and TV critic and a long-term friend, Mr. Cam Williams. Joining me today is, uh, well, he's a, he's a long and enduring friend um, in the Australian film community, uh, has been heard on the ABC, has been seen on ABC News, has written for almost every conceivable uh, film news and, uh, and film news and review outlet in Australia and beyond. Um, and uh, he's, you know, a, a dear friend when it comes to talking about Michael Mann. He coined two iconic phrases um, from the One Heat Minute podcast, the Rage Reverse, hashtag Rage Reverse for Val Kilmer uh, and hashtag Heat Blocking. And I'm looking forward to see what um, what potential uh, uh, Mohican science he's going to drop. Uh, it is my friend uh, and co-founder of Graffiti with Punctuation, Mr. Cam Williams. Thank you so much for joining me on the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Thank you, Blake. What an honor it is to be here. And to anyone listening from any of the prestigious dictionaries around the world, we are ready to start adding some of the one heat minute and uh, (laughs) Mohican terminology to the lexicon. So if you want to add any of the words mentioned on this podcast, reach out to Blake. I'm pretty sure we can get heat blocking in there. We can get (laughs) heat blocking. Heat blocking would be really strong. Heat blocking is one of the strongest, (laughs) one of your strongest coin phrases of a, of a, of a career and a litany of, um, of great coin phrases. I I thoroughly enjoyed it, but thank you so much for coming along to this kind of mad thing that I asked you to do at the last minute. Uh, Even though I'd promised that I wasn't going to do it again, I couldn't help myself. You know what? Like, I'm so glad that, you know, if you chose to return that it was for Last of the Mohicans because um, for me, this was like, this was the film, this was the first film that I saw of Michael Mann's. I agree. Without yeah, same. Knowing it was, yeah, but I did not know it was directed by Michael Mann when I saw it. Yeah, no, um, right. I think because, you know, we're around the same age. We would have seen it in Australia. It was a really popular film here, insanely popular. Yeah. Yeah, it was huge. And I think at the time that I saw it, the only reason why most teens wanted to see Last of the Mohicans was because everyone had heard about the heart cut scene, the scene where the heart gets taken out and it was this gnarly, epic scene that just made you such a badass if you had seen (laughs) Last of the Mohicans. Um, Not to mention tomahawks, which I think to teenage boys as a weapon, the tomahawk is just... It's just so much cooler than any other weapon. There's no other weapon quite like it. Really, there isn't. Yeah, and you know what? I like when when you kind of said, you know, let's let's chat Mohicans. I was like trying to think about like the first time that I ever like saw anything from Last of the Mohicans, and I really do think it was the Last of the Mohicans trailer. The first thing I ever remember of seeing from the film was in the trailer. They had that incredible shot of the tomahawk being thrown to camera. Yes, I think for me, like that that's that was such a striking image that I think, you know, I was like, I have to see that movie Uh, no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter how long it takes, no matter how far (laughs) I was like, who is on the other end of that Tomahawk? I have to know. Um, So, yeah. So I think, you know, when, you know, thinking about, 
all of you know the, the Michael Mann filmography. Um, I think for a lot of for a lot of people of our generation, Last of the Mohicans was kind of that that first film that we saw, unaware of what was to come or what was already out there. Because I think a lot of people first saw this film. If you didn't see it in a cinema, which I wasn't one of those people because I was too young, Same. you would have been watching this for the first time either on VHS or maybe on Saturday night on one of the free-to-air channels in Australia or somewhere around I, the world would have just watched this with ads. I would have, I, I, I'm exactly that person who saw it like on a Saturday night in Australia with ads and in the version that I saw, there was no heart being cut out. Let's be like, before we get to the last, before we get to this incredible ending, before we get to this rich, you know, this in, rich period epic, before we get to the Maguas, you know, uh, arguable, um, you know, you know, definitely contender belt for like best 90s villain and maybe one of the best villains in in movies really um there was no heart scene cut out and so later on when i went to a friend's house cam and you get and they had the vhs of mohicans and like oh i love last mohicans you know i think we 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 taped it onto a, a tape on vhs at home so you know i had to fast forward through the ads um but and and for people who are listening in 2019 and millennials like what you had to do what um yeah so fast forwarding through the ads um to to watch the movie but then i remember seeing it on vhs and i was like what like all of the really gnarly violence like that had been tempered significantly in the free-to-air versions was there writ large and i was like completely stunned i was like whoa he just cut that guy's heart out and it was all inferred in the version that i'd seen yeah, yeah, and obviously watching it on that smaller screen too. I, yeah. I can imagine people that saw saw it for the first time in a cinema. That would have been just like like an incredible oh. thing on like that big screen. But yeah, even just at home um, on that smaller screen. I mean, it's such a. I think when you're younger, you think it's kind of you think that it's like such a bigger moment than it is when you revisit it. Yeah. Um. But that was the that was like the epicenter of that film. I mean, aside from the incredible ending, which we're going to get to in a sec, but that was like that like when I when I think about Last of the Mohicans, I kind of think backwards from that scene. You know, I kind of think backwards it's, from that. And, it's a it's a mic drop of a scene, right? Because like in the nineties, you think about the way that different filmmakers were like pushing the envelope with violence. And, and as an example, like I, I, the one I think about of, you know, sort of personal violence, but like affronting things happening on screen is like Danny Boyle's train spotting. And so like mm. that pushed the envelope, you know, like later now in the Saw movies in the post 2000 era, you're seeing needles penetrate skin, but at the time sort of standards and practices internationally wouldn't allow Danny Boyle to, in a movie, you know, not glorifying, but just sort of showing the highs and lows of heroin addict <laughs> behavior in, in London and oh sorry, in Edinburgh rather in, uh, at the time. Um, they weren't allowed to show a needle piercing skin ever. So as spun out and as weird and as trippy as that movie is, they never were allowed to show Neil's piercing skin. Even in Pulp Fiction, famously in 94, um, where a needle pierces skin, you don't see the pierce. You see mm. the gesture and you see the needle in there. And so it's just like, the, it felt like 92 is a year where you see a man's ear or imagine what it's like to see a man's ear get cut off in Reservoir Dogs. And in Mohicans, you see a guy's heart get cut out. Um, and, mm. and, and it's sort of those things of like the before and after and pushing the envelope as far as the senses would allow them, um, to, to take it. And so, yeah, so I, 
it was a shocker of a scene for me. But again, it was one of those weird things that even a couple of years after I was deeply familiar with Mohicans because of all the free-to-air stuff, I, I then saw this scene and was just like, jaw drop. Oh, my God. Yeah. This movie is insane. So I when you look back on Last of the Mohicans, I was trying to think, okay, it comes out, it comes out in 1992, right? Yes. Um, I would have still been in primary school at the time. Same. Sorry if I just turned anyone to dust listening who is, uh, you know, a bit <laughs> off. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry for doing that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so 1992, and so I was thinking, okay, how do I go from being a, a, a little dude in 1992 who cannot see Last of the Mohicans and there is no internet nope. at the time, right? The only chance of me finding out about Mohicans if, is if someone calls me on a landline phone and tells me about <laughs> it. Right? The millennials listening, a landline phone, was, it was a, there was a plug in the wall connected to a phone that you had in your home and it would ring and you would pick it up and talk to people. That's what a landline and phone was. And it was a number that you shared with everyone else in your yeah. house. Yeah, and every house had a number. And some people would even answer the phone and, and announce their number. I will say um, the last four digits, like my grandma. Yeah. 7001. 7001. Oh, my God. Bless her. Bless old Dottie. May she rest in peace. 7001. Bless her. (laughs) Fuck, you just made me remember that. That's like a memory that just shot back into my brain. It was in the the archives, deep in the archives. Yeah. That's such a nice memory. Um, Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how I got from there to Mohicans, and I think I figured it out some through some real internet sleuthing, right? Oh, awesome. So I looked, up, I looked up what the highest grossing films of 1992 were, right? Number one, Aladdin. Number yes. two, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Three, Batman Returns, Whoa. right? Batman Returns was one of the first films that I saw in a cinema, right? So that's a little bit of a clue as to how I got to Mohicans. Going down the list, Lethal Weapon 3, A Few Good Men, Sister Act, the Bodyguard, Wayne's World. Are they Basic almost Instinct. all of that list except for the top one on Disney? They're almost all Warner Brothers. Am I wrong? Uh, I'm, I'm not too sure because the next one is A League of Their Own and then after that is Unforgiven, which I'm pretty sure was like the big, the big one. Warner Brothers film yeah. of the year, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure that was it. One of the best pictures. Right. So you keep going down the list. The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Hollywood, <laughs> make more of those kind of suburban oh, thrillers. Yeah. Under Siege, number 13. Patriot Games 14, Bram Stoker's Dracula, oh, which was famous, <laughs> which was famous in my neighbourhood because somebody's older sister asked for a refund after seeing that film, and we thought that was the coolest thing someone could have ever done <laughs> defy the laws of cinema and ask for a refund. That was so 16, bad. I want my money back. Wow. Sixteen is White Man Can't Jump, and seventeen is Last of the Mohicans. What a right? fucking year! What a fucking year! What a year! Yeah, I think 92 may be one of one of the great. I know everyone says 96 and 99, but fucking 92 coming in for the win. <laughs> wow. Okay, so coming in hot. I'm thinking I'm thinking if I'm a little dude in 92 going to see Aladdin, Home Alone 2, Batman Returns, maybe even Sister Act. I do remember seeing the second one in the cinema. I don't know if I saw yeah. the first one in the cinema, right? I'm thinking while I'm waiting in the lobby to see Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, I'm looking at a poster for Last of the Mohicans, of right? You are. It's, of course you are. And Michael Mann, through the power of cinema, is implanting in my mind the idea <laughs> that one day I will watch Daniel Day-Lewis run at me on screen. 
and and there will be an awakening. And I think that is how I came across Last of the Mohicans. I must have seen it in the lobby, and then later on when either we were renting seven weeklies for seven dollars <laughs> at Video oh. Easy in Eastwood, I would have gone. That, that one. The this one is, with that guy running at th- me. I don't biggest... know why, but it's telling me to rent that film. I don't know why, but I have to see it. Look, and I saw it. And, and that's how I got to Mohicans. Great sleuthing. And what I would say is I think you, I can, when I've done my own sort of personal reflection, I just know 100% my dad saw the film. And I know yeah. that my dad and his friends saw the film because what would happen is because of just overwhelming negligent parenting on on mainly my father's <laughs> side of the family, um, they just were like, "Movies are movies. What are they going to do to this kid? What's gonna What's gonna happen to his poor little fry, fried brain?" Um, so I know that they saw it at the cinema together, um, and because uh, my mum was one of those great um, ladies and still is to this day. If you put on a if you put on like a 95 hour true crime documentary style something, she'll stay awake for every moment of it. If you put on a narrative piece of cinema in about 45 seconds, she's asleep. So I know that my mom definitely wasn't going to see last of the Mohicans at the cinema, but I, I can I'm be sure that my dad saw it and saw it with his friends. And then it would have come out in Australia. I'm guessing in VHS on like 93. So I still would have been young, but I can I have vivid memories of my dad and his friends watching Mohicans on a TV, like on our old AC Thorn TV that had a button that you pushed in and out and had to tune that sucker. And people are like freaking out right now, like you know that this this bad boy was in our house. So um yeah, like I, I remember it then, and I remember probably at times them thinking, should we let him? be watching this or should we make him go to bed and due to pure negligence and thankfully that negligence sort of led me to watch Mohicans at a, at a at an extremely young age at that time I, I remember seeing it but again I never saw the heart being cut out scene until much later oh I mean negligence is responsible for <laughs> most people that love films right of this of our generation you 100%. Know, just 100%. just loose parenting led to us seeing the- that we weren't supposed to see. That's one of your good phrases. That's a good one. I really like. I really like loose parenting. Um, that's a parenting. That's a, that's 100% correct. Yeah, just and look, even I the great, even I the really get- even the greatest film geek made good. Quentin Tarantino in his recent miniseries talking with Amy Nicholson talked about his parents taking him to movies that are like drastically inappropriate for a six-year-old. Like he went and saw The Graduate at six, and you're like, what? But like in the I cinema, know, uh, like craziness. He's a he's a liar because he didn't see he didn't see uh, Enter the Dragon when it came out. No, so he didn't. Tarantino. <laughs> this, this, this. And one of my favorite things about that podcast, I think people should listen to this podcast. He didn't see Serpico until two years ago. So oh. is Quentin Tarantino a lie? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Is these are the big questions where we're we're digressing deeply, deeply on uh, on the last okay, moments. So let's get back on track. I know we got a little bit high on our own nostalgias then, which I think is great. The only other memory I want to share before we start talking about the end of this film and some other things about Mohicans is that I do distinctly remember one of those great new releases walls at the VHS uh, at, at our video store mm. that was just all Mohicans, like all they Mohicans. had like eighty. 80- they had like 80 copies of it, like as a new release. 
And I think a lot of the films of the 90s that, you know, as we would go into the video store and kind of go to the kids section, as you would kind of walk past that entryway, um, like in my mind I just have flashes of like all these iconic films from the 90s just having that like really strong placement in the new release section and then just being a seemingly endless amount of whatever was the film of the week, um, which throughout the 90s, especially into the late 90s, um, you know, when you think about all the kind of big movies of that era that I guess were just just out of my reach being too young, you know, that's there's so much stuff coming through there that I'm just like, wow, like Peak. I can remember that so vividly. Peak VHS happened just after Mohicans because at the time Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park on VHS, which is 93, if I'm not mistaken, like um, and sort of would have been early 94 probably by the time it was like everywhere, is um, was like still one of the biggest VHSs ever at the time. And then I think a couple of years later it was sort of tagged on with Independence Days and, it, you know, it just sort of grew and grew and grew with, you know, the big blockbuster of... Um, the big blockbuster of the year every year, I think, up all the way, all the way up until like the last big VHS had to be Star Wars Episode One, which is nine, yeah. oh, which is ninety nine. That? That's the very last one which... of that era, and then and then it and then it pivots to DVD after that, and we get Lord of the Rings and all those things after that. Yeah. Throw Twister in there, Jumanji, <laughs> Jumanji. Uh, uh, I remember one day coming home from school, and my mum was like, "Go into the kitchen." I was like, "What?" And I was like, "We had an <laughs> island in our kitchen, and there was a lone VHS of Independence Day." that she had bought sitting on the island and she's like we own it and i was like yes it was like (laughs) the best because like we rented so many vhs tapes that to own one was like it it was a big deal yeah it was like it was like such a big deal at the time um so mohicans right revisiting this film it just reminded me that it's one of those films that is 90% 90% score. <laughs> <laughs> it, and, and you know what? It, it absolutely is because Michael Mann found this score, this percussive song called The Gale, actually recommended to him by his wife, and I've said it a couple of times in a couple of the interviews for the show, recommended to him by his wife, and he threw it at, you know, Trevor Jones and said, arrange the living bejesus out of this thing. Like, this is the score to the whole movie. It's a movie that strangely for all its epic scale and broadness is under two hours and particularly in the ending focus, um, you know, it's it's a sh- showing off that theme in the biggest, baddest way possible. Um, but it's like every conceivable arrangement, soaring, war- you know, you know, soaring, warmth, love, romance, loss, death, um, sort of cataclysm, you know, um, ambivalent sort of every way that this thing could have been manipulated it is it's yeah it's 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 like the ultimate uh what do you call it like an ultimate medley of the same track like in every conceivable jazz almost like a jazz way like it's just taking it to, to yeah. the nth degree you have to say like having seen this film so many times and then kind of having a little bit of distance from it because i haven't I hadn't seen it for a few years ahead of this discussion but in the opening credits, when you, you kind of get when it when you first hear the score and it kind of hits into overdrive, it really does feel like you kind of you're like the dude from two thousand and one, like just like <laughs> uh, like you just like it really it's it's so overwhelming, um, intentionally so. But it just you just get caught up in all of the emotion straight away. 
um, before the film has even started. And look, um, I know, so I know your, of, yeah. I know your deep relationship to things like Star Wars as well. It's like that. It's it's there are some of those scores that happen in movies. You know, John Williams with Indiana Jones and the Star Wars movies, and and you know, ET. You know, let's most Williams scores like Bernard Herrmann and Taxi Driver or Bernard Herrmann and Psycho. It's where you hear a score, and that that without it, it like. It is it is the X factor of the whole production. Like Star mm. Wars without John Williams is not Star Wars. Like it's just not yeah. Star Wars. It just it doesn't. There's something fundamentally off. You're like this doesn't work anymore. Um, yeah. And 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 I would definitely argue that with Indiana Jones. I would definitely argue that with things like ET, Jaws, of course. But Mohicans is like that too, and because it's this like one lone outlier, and the score is so. Un- unfathomably powerful. You're just like it. It, it kind of sneaks up on you. And I, and I, you know, for anyone who's listening to you and I talk right now on this feed, they would know that this is the one heat minute podcast feed. They would know about my obsession with Michael Mann and Heat and just how many times I revisited it. So in my casual viewing over the last couple of years, prior to you know conceiving of and executing on this project, I have avoided Michael Mann movies often. <laughs> because I've been so obsessed with it. So coming back to Mohicans pretty fresh fairly recently on a couple of revisits um, when this project sort of started to simmer, um, I was just really taken with it. I was taken with its economy. I was taken with its consistency of score, like in comparison to Heat, which has a, you know, although it's got some Moby licks here and there, um, uh, it's 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 a compendium of like different elements. Um, yeah. This one is consistent, thematically consistent and and just underpinned and riffed upon and in that classical you know movie magic kind of way yeah definitely and it has that you know of i would definitely say of michael mann's films this is definitely his kind of most romantic and so it's kind of does like the score does evoke a lot of that old romance which is very kind of evident kind of right in the, the middle of the film um where it kind of has those quieter moments um, you know, aside from the kind of, the kind of, you know, he really is building that, that, that romance in the middle, which is really interesting to see him do, um, in this context, because you have to remember, you know, like this is post, this is the post dancing with wolves era of, <laughs> yes. of, of filmmaking where I can, I can see, you know, something like last of the Mohicans definitely got greenlit off the back of, you know, that film being a success. Um, you know, so it's, and a behemoth at that like it was like box office oscars everything had all yeah, the ingredients and I, think, and I think you know because a lot of michael a lot of michael mann's other films dominate the conversation as as time goes on and and people dedicate podcasts to it <laughs> to his to his the films that people talk about the most but something like Mohicans, you know, like when you look back on it, you're like, like even when I was doing the research for the top box office, I was expecting it to be maybe in the top 50 of 92. I didn't yeah. expect it to be in the top 20. Yeah. Like it was, a, it was, a, it was a legit hit. It was a smash. Um, it was, it's still, I yeah. think to date his most successful film. Yeah. And, and also like, you know, someone like Daniel Day Lewis, who I think we always just view as this kind of acting guru. We never move, we never view him as kind of like a movie star. Yeah. Um, but this I would say is kind of as close as he gets to 
having like movie star moments where he's kind of running at the camera and he's, and you know, I think my favorite thing about Mohicans definitely is the way that man shoots the, all of the rifle sequences. So whenever Daniel Day Lewis has that rifle up and he's aiming that gun, um, I think the one thing, the definition of a hero shot, right? Like the definition. and, And also something about this movie that struck me is that, um, Michael Mann seemed to seems to understand the tension of an old timey gun, yes. and by that I mean is that he understands that the best marksman of that era understood that you don't waste a shot, right? Yeah. And so all throughout Mohicans, so much of the dramatic tension in a lot of the action sequences come from these guys picking the moment to shoot and then times where they don't shoot Mm. because they know that if they do, they're going to be without that bullet and they have to reload and it's going to take forever. And there's even like, even revisiting it, I noticed that like Daniel Day-Lewis's character is really clever through a lot of these action sequences, especially towards the end, where as he's running, he picks up loaded guns because he knows that it's easier easier than keep running and loading. And even, even the research behind the film talked about um, as, Daniel Day-Lewis was researching, like, what his character was doing in the movie. He's like, oh, you can't load a gun on the run. And Michael Mann's like, yes, you can. And he found a guy who could do it. Like, he found the guy in the world that could do it. And so, they they were shooting test footage of this guy running through a field, powdering and loading a gun, like, loading a musket while he was running to show Daniel Day-Lewis that it was possible and had that guy coach him on how to do it so that when he was doing it in the movie, he could actually do it. But, yeah, you're so right. It's like... When you're talking about the intensity of um, even one wonderful scene, uh, you know, ultimately the most violent face-off that you see between Hawkeye and Magua, so Daniel Day-Lewis' character and Wes Studi, where um, Wes Studi's Magua is pointing his gun at Cora at the beginning of the film, and mm. you see Daniel Day-Lewis catch him through the sort of haze of chaos and smoke, and he raises his musket, raises his musket, sees that Margot turns his musket towards him to fire. He drops to his knees to avoid a shot and, and keeps looking for the gun, but doesn't shoot haphazardly because, like you said, once you take that shot, it's gone. You know what it is, Blake? It's a game of chess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's, that's, that's the show. <laughs> that's it, guys. That's it. Uh, thanks for joining that us. Was, that was so uh, silly. It out. That was so Last silly. Week. I was not expecting that. It was very silly. Oh, God. It's a game of chess. Oh, I can't believe we figured it out. No one needs to ever write again about Last of the Mohicans because we figured it out. Figured I it can't out. believe it. And look, in figuring it out, we must get to the, the, the topic du jour, the focal mm. point of this movie. And I think in revisiting and coming back, it is absolutely worthy of the same scrutiny as any other Michael Mann film. They're deeply rich. The characters are so big. But I just, when I think about Mohicans and I think about his masterworks, I think about this ending. And you talked about a movie that is too much score um, or is all score. Well, this ending is all score. The movie devolves, well, perhaps not devolves, but sort of certainly unabashedly sort of um, rails against modern cinema and becomes this almost elemental piece of silent cinema for around 12 minutes. Um, And the sort of pre-silent cinema, pre-mountain ascent, pre-battle between Uncas and Magua's men and then those face-offs and those choices. 
there's this wonderful little moment where we see Major Duncan Hayward, Steve Waddington, negotiate his life for Hawkeye's life to make sure that Cora could be with Hawkeye. Margot cursing out the Huron Sachem in French, which I think is even more insulting deeply because he's speaking to him in a modern tongue and cursing him out about being backward before yeah. leaving. Um, and then we get into this just absolutely... So firstly, that that sort of signature tragedy of and redemptive tragedy, if you like, of Stephen Waddington, who is just terrific as Major Duncan Hayward. And uh, you get into this just unbelievable... just It's just this unbelievable ending that completely pulls the rug on who we're meant to be following in my mind. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that ascent and that ending. The, um, the fact that it's all set on a cliff plays into so many primal fears of just like being that one person that falls off the cliff or, you know, like when, you know, when you're cliffside, right. Anywhere looking out and your body just wants to cling to the ground. Like you just want to get really low to the ground. Right. And if you want to get closer to the edge, you think you'll be safer if you're just flat on your stomach, like crawling towards the edge. Yes. Because you're decreasing your chances of being someone that trips and falls off the edge of a cliff, right? Uh-huh. So this whole final sequence of Mohicans where it's like on this cliff, like kind of looking out into this wilderness, it always just reminds me of just like just how much it raises the stakes on this finale to the point where the 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 footage of the bodies kind of like every with each person that kind of perishes that like I'll always I'll never forget those falling bodies because it's just and I really like the point that you made about how it's like it's almost kind of like silent cinema it's just it just plays into so many um fears around just that kind of primal nature thing Yes. Um, that yeah. Whenever I think about the ending of Mohicans, I just think about that 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 big wide open cliff and just those bodies falling, um, and how it just completely emphasizes the kind of the tragedy of what's going on, um, and just how and just and and also it just completely ab- obliterates your expectations in terms of like who's going to live and who's going to die, right? Because you know it's so clear cut. Like when you watch this film the first time, you think you have a real clear-cut understanding of who the heroes and the villains are. Uh, but then you kind of get older and you get into the complexities of like of the politics of the situation, you can definitely get to a point where you kind of think that Magua is is right because he's he's kind of he's one of those great villains where you know his methods are kind of brutal and crazy, but his justification is on point so you do find yourself as I, I definitely find myself as i'm getting older especially the more you kind of learn about what happened at the time and kind of the dark history of of america and colonialism in general you start to really think about you know his politics and what he was fighting for and you kind of are like yeah this is one of those great villains that you kind of do side with because he's kind of right yeah he's fighting for progress like I would never would have thought it's it's so like you know we went on a, a pretty deep nostalgia trip at the beginning of this episode which I which I enjoyed for the fact that like this is it's just one of those things that you learn with anything that you become obsessed with is that sometimes it has its hooks in you before you realize it has its hooks in you and I think mm. that what what the staying power of really powerful movies is that the hooks can stay in you 
and it's it's it starts to be stripped away. You get a bit older. You have your own cynicism. You have your own life experiences. And I definitely think that this movie, why it still deeply resonates for me, is exactly what you're talking about with Magua. Like I look at Magua in this sequence, just everything that Wes Studio is doing, being faced with these choices, you know, with with these huge choices, with with these with this politics of like this is a guy who has spent this whole time trying to get this vengeance and has yet adhered to his tribal policy. You know, he's, he's, he's pursued it tirelessly. And once he's found them alive, he's done his thing. And then his, his, his own tribe has failed him. He's had to sacrifice all of his ethics. He's had to play like old timey summer of 1757 espionage. He's had to play, all these different peoples against them. And that's one cool thing about this Michael Mann movie. That's great. I love it. It's a small touch, but it's Daniel Day Lewis saying, he's like, he's no Mohawk. He's Huron. But for all the audience who are white and us are like, I couldn't tell you what a Mohawk was or a Huron. If you had them both standing in front of me. Right. It's like, it just shows you that you're not educated. You're not educated yep. to, like these guys are. And it's like, you've watched this guy do all this stuff and he's been enslaved. He's been used. He's been abused. He's just trying to gain vengeance because he's seen this guy be a catalyst for his his demise. He's tried to adopt the behaviors of two invading colonial superpowers on his land in order to survive. And none of it works. Ultimately, mm. he's rejected. He's railed against. And he can see that extinction is on the way for his people. If these, if, if these colonial superpowers are still here, we're not going to exist for long. Because once they're finished fighting each other, they're going to extinguish us. And so mm. it becomes this soaring tragedy for him. Like, it's it's that whole Killmonger thing, right? You watch Black Panther, you know who the good guy's meant to be. It's pretty freaking mm. clear. But there's something that on revisits and why there's a level of profundity that, that people really, really, really deeply resonated with people when they watched that movie, I think, in, in a more popular context, in a more modern and well-known context, perhaps, you can reflexively apply all of that to Magua and West Studi. And I, and I just am so happy. I've, I've just remembered something while I'm talking to you today, Cam, which is awesome. I heard today, actually, in, in a completely unrelated meeting uh, today, that the one and only Wes Studi this year is going to be awarded with one of the honorary Oscars. Whoa, that's awesome. For his career, for a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. So, so not by the end of... The, before the end of this is produced... Um, I'm hoping that we can just continue to solidify in people's minds that when they talk about the Great West Duty, very surely it's going to be Oscar winner or Academy Award winner West Duty um, from now on. But I think in the, if this was his only work alone in now in a modern context, how this guy isn't an Academy Award winner for this performance as Magua or at least a you know like a front runner nominee would baffles me to this day. Yeah, it's such a great performance. Also, his introduction is so understated, and you—he's the character you least expect to to portray yes. the party, um, to the point where you know, like, uh, like you know, he, I think that would have been such a like, I, like I can't remember like the first time, you know, that would have been such a great twist, you know, like, and, and you know, yes. having seen Mohique so many times, you know, it's just you just know it. But um, the fact that he's kind of introduced as this kind of, you know, this tracker guide character and then he's the one that kind of pulls out the, the mohawk and just goes to town during that first ambush, 
Um, yeah, it's just such a great way. His character is introduced in such an interesting way, um, but unassumingly so. Um, but oh, yeah, it's just such a fantastic performance, and also all of that, all that that whole speech that that kind of begins the ending um, at the camp, where he, especially where he talks about like his vision for the tribe and how he talks about how I think the most heartbreaking thing about his vision is that he truly believes in what the the invaders are telling him, which is that if he plays the game right, the way it should be is is equality, right? Is that he, he will walk he will walk equally with the invaders. Like that mm-hmm. will be like a that will be like one tr- they'll be like one people. Um, which really is kind of like drinking the cool, the colonial Kool-Aid, right? Big like time. he's really, he's, he's really not like, I, like I do, I do kind of side with his, his plan a little bit in terms of getting vengeance, but also, um, he, you know, he, he's the kind of guy that's going to get all the way to the finish line and get betrayed by, by, you know, the French and the English, you know, because they're always, they're always going to view him as, as uh, something lesser. All, as something yeah. Like- but he truly believes that he will be like if he plays all his cards right, one day he will walk as an equal. Um, which in the 1700s is is like is radical. Just- it's radical. Oh. Like it's like it's fucking radical. And which is why yeah. you can see that his Sasham, the Huron chief, um, you know, uh, elder. Uh, he's so outraged. He's, he's like he's, outraged he's, in a very elder kind of yeah, way. Yeah, he's you know? he's just very yeah. modestly like, no, no, no. You you you've lost your way. You've you've lost your way. This is what you're gonna do. This is my decision. This is what I want you to do. And yeah, then it, it's it's yeah. I, there's just so many elements in that lead up to this mountain mountainside. Um, and and what I can tease, and I can't go into too much detail in this episode because it will spoil it. But Dante Spinotti who is on the show, cinematographer extraordinaire, who dropped some major bombs about his participation in this movie um, in his episode, also talks about an extreme near miss of one of those bodies flying on that cliffside. An extreme near miss. Um, which I'll let I'll, I'll let that simmer in your mind, Cam, and 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 flare up all of your deep fears about being on that cliff face, as mine were just in overdrive talking to him about the prospect of this near miss. But yeah, so we we leave that injust we we leave that sorry that let that call for justice and Margois perceived injustice at that moment. He exits the camp. He takes Alice. And there's a couple of really beautiful exchanges. One of them is Uncas and his dad. He looks in his eyes, and they don't say a single word. And then he bounds up that hill, and then Hawkeye does, you know, another one of those hero, literally the hero shot, um, another hero shot, a mercy kill to relieve what is. I I don't know if that's more disturbing, the the heart being cut out, or watching a man literally realistically be burned alive in cinema. Like that is terrifying like that makeup they did for steve Warrington burning in that fire is just uh, i mean unforgettable like st- that, yeah. that, that i think that scarred me way more than that heart being cut out <laughs> definitely yeah it's pretty for it's pretty full on to the point where yeah they really like they really make it so full on that you re- like that that you kind of do side with daniel day lewis's decision to kind <laughs> yeah. of just yeah like please every time now i'm like kill him Stop it. It's so awful. It's really, 
really awful. Mm, mm. And yeah, and and you know, even just uh, like all of that cliffside running too is just like it, it's it's just executed so well, like kind of like as as an action sequence. Um, but like in that very Michael Mann kind of way, it kind of has that. It, it they ha- he still manages to fit in all of those like poetic moments. Um, to kind of bookend every character's kind of story, you know, being it, you know, an, an end or an escape, um, which is, yeah, I mean, you know what? The only thing, you know, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna say the only thing that didn't hold up for me with Mohicans on this revisit was you can definitely see them counting the steps of the fight, fight sequences. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a little bit of that. Uh... It doesn't feel as organic. Perhaps. Yeah, it just it just feels a bit like one, two, three, one, two, three. Swing the axe, hit the sword, punch the guy. <laughs> like it's too. It very it is in that way, but I do understand the limitations of you know, of the way that they probably had very little time to kind of shoot those scenes. Yes. Um. So I do think on revisit, you know, kind of when they are finding cliffside, it does kind of, it does kind of have that staginess to it that that just didn't make it as kick-ass as, as what I remembered it as. Um, but, but certainly the, um, what, I think once, you know, once after, after the uh, untimely demise of Uncas, once Chingachikook mm. is, you know, as Russell means is tearing up that hill, there's a ferocity that that final part of that sequence has that just no other part of the movie really has. Like he's just, yeah, exactly. there's just, yeah, it's just ferocious and, and and Hawkeye's chasing him and trying to just cover in any way that he can. And mm. it's just ruthless. Yeah, I think stopped. I think what well, with with Uncas, I think um I think the fact that, you know, cuz the title of the film is constantly telling like the title of the film, the opening kind of crawl and everything is kind of really emphasizing the fact that you know that 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 group of people this is you know this is this is it right and so i think with uncas it's just like it's just so heartbreaking because um i think that's the first time where you think that it really is going to go like the bleakest possible ending right yes. you just kind of like this like he like you kind of that's the first sign despite you know the fact that we've seen so much betrayal and 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 kind of so many people dying throughout this movie, but the most of the main characters kind of stay intact until the end. Yeah. Um, and so I think with Uncas, it's the first sign that you're like, oh wow, this could possibly be the, the worst, the most bleak ending um, possible. And then so from that moment onwards, and especially like just the way that his body, he just kind of turns, and then it's the slump, and then it's the slow. The slow Slide. kind of roll off the cliff. That 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 freaking roll down. That that, that will slide always, is just that gnarly. Will always, yeah, that will always stay with me um, because it's just it's it just looks so real. Um, but yeah, I think that's the first sign that it's like, yeah, th- this is going to be brutal, guys. And it it certainly does um, get to that point. Um, even with the decision, you know, um, even with the decision of I'm just trying to get her name now of Jody. Is it Jody? Jody no, Jody uh, May's the actress. Jody May's the actress. It's Alice. 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 Um, with her, like her decision, um, <laughs> it's it's just it's an incredible moment, um, and and that is kind of that plays more to the kind of the you know 
the romantic, the tragic romance kind of side of the film um, that is kind of forever at play amongst all the kind of like, you know, Michael Mann, kick-ass, masculine stuff <laughs> happening. Um, but, yeah, and then obviously then we've got the showdown, right? We've got the... the One of the great showdowns. One of the great... And, 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 and still marvelling and continue to sort of ponder on relinquishing the great American hero, the frontiersman, the Daniel Day-Lewis character, who's the hero who you would assume is going to be facing off against Magua this entire time. And then Russell Means and Magua, Wes Studi and Russell Means, you know, um, you know, Chingachikuk and Magua rather going toe to toe in this final sequence. is just this beautiful bait and switch. And it's, it's like the, the matchup you never knew you wanted until minutes before it happens. But it's messed up because you, you, it, it's exactly what the French and the English want, right? It's it's the natives killing each other, oh, which yeah. is devastating. Um, but it's and that's what and that's what's so poignant about the way that, although once they go face to face, it's that you know, and and Chingachikuk is kind of like dismantling him so that he can no longer fight the pause to look at each other and appraise each other and know that he's going to have to deal in death. And he sort of shakes his head, like being disappointed. He doesn't have to say that they wanted this, but he's almost saying it. And I love that you said it. I love that that's your observation. Cause that's exactly how I feel a lot now. It's like, that's exactly what they want. They want the bickering. They want the infighting in the tribal wars. Cause they want that tribal discontent because ultimately they're more equipped to deal with them. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's, um, and I and I don't I, I think when you I think you know we've talked a lot about watching this film when we were younger I, I don't think unless you're kind of mega intelligent I don't think any of that stuff no. stood out for me watching this film because definitely I, not it's, it's, I think it, it takes a more adult and adept understanding of even just the layering of multiple political systems monarchical colonial settlements tribal like watching how that interplay works you know in 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 michael mann's work in this film and and then even the 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 many tiered i think we i think we observe and hear about five or six different tribal nations in this Mm. in in this film as well as colonial warring nations you know uh, colonial superpowers warring in in a settlement you know it's 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 an odd it's an odd thing. Yeah, it's one of those things where, um, yeah, you. I think I think the film doesn't give you enough information about kind of the way the way that America was set up at the time when it comes to the tribes. Like, it, I think it gives you just enough information to understand the tension between different tribes and different people, um, but you never really get a really good sense of you know the the, the social structure. Uh, of you know um you know all the different nations of people like you just mentioned um it's a very michael man way to do that right he wants to he's chunking information in there and his relentless pacing is you know um it's it's one of those things that it's it's not he's not assuming that someone he's wanting you to be enriched by revisits and he's wanting you to be enriched by you know potentially if you're a more sophisticated you know, 
person who's got any kind of background with American history, you're going to look at this possibly in a completely different way than two Australian guys, right? On the other side of the continent, especially who are younger, you're going to have a much deeper um, into, you know, intuit a whole bunch of other stuff that is just sort of laid into your experience of viewing it. But at the same time also, I think, you know, when you're older and you've just had a lot more experience watching things and consuming things and being more attentive to those details as a, especially you and I, as massive cinephiles, it's like watching it in with our modern context and our modern appraisal of movies, you just start to go like, wow, like I didn't even hear that that tribe was mentioned, you know, like in the first viewing, like I didn't even know that wasn't, it didn't even cross my mind. It was like, I was distracted by something shiny in one part of the screen, but it's just this layering in and this mentions and these allegiances and these things. He's just like, he's, he's being deeply authentic, but he's also not, he's not waiting for you ever. That's what Michael Mann's yeah. great thing is he just never waits for you. He just assumes that you're going to keep up. And sometimes you miss a few little bits and bobs and you don't catch it until that, you know, that sweet spot, you know, 10, 20, 250 times, however many times you want to watch a Michael Mann movie. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and then so, and then we moved and then you moved to kind of like the, the, the final moment. The coda, um, yeah. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it is, it's such a, it's such a beautiful ending. Um, and they say the title of the movie at the end of the movie, which you know I love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's it, you know it has that too of um of calling that out, just like and- in Empire Strikes Back, where Luke says to Leia, <laughs> "That was the Empire striking back," you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, if, look if, if I'm watching any movie and they say the title of the movie in the movie, it's like the best. Like I yeah. don't, I don't care how much of it people think that's a joke. I, I always love that. So last the Mohicans does that, like it just Extremely saves it right rough. to that last moment, and you're just like. Whew. It's like chef, chef kissing the sky like every single time. I'd love to share something with you because you talk about how beautiful it is and poetic and it's in that last moment. I think it's a really in- important point that you brought up, which is that like in the final stanza of this movie, particularly in the last 12 minutes, like that is literally when all of our key sort of sextet of characters start to like start to get really badly, you know, the, the 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 consequences of all the actions of the film really catch up with everyone in a really quick succession. So Duncan passes yep. really quickly. Uncas is unceremoniously dispatched and Alice makes a choice between literally death or, you know, maybe a fate worse than death, being passed, yep. a, being, being a girl formerly of court who we perhaps understand is possibly sickly because she hasn't been really well for the entire time that she's been on the new continent and is then potentially just going to be passed around like a thing to this entire war party. So she doesn't really, and you know, the guy who's beckoning, you know, tenderly to to her to come closer, his hands are dripping with the blood of a former lover. So like, you know, the the choices are pretty not, not great. But um, in FX Feeney's really wonderful Tashen book um, that's about Michael Mann, uh, he makes a really brilliant observation, which I wanted to share with you, which I think you sort of started, and I was meaning to catch it in the middle of our conversation there, but I'll just do it now as we're sort of wrapping, which is he's like, in the moment that they're all standing there, they're all the last of something. Like, he's the last of his line. Nathaniel is the last of his family. All his family have been murdered on the frontier. He's just an orphan. He's the last of his line. And Cora's entire family's dead. She's the last of her line. So you've got these three people who are all the last representatives of their family and their lineage. 
and they're their own kind of family, they're their own kind of moment and their own, you know, kind of breaking out to the future and and this moment where they're kind of orphaned by historical forces that are bigger than them and they've got to make a choice to move on. I just think it's a really, you know, if you get a chance, I'm a huge Michael Mann fan, of course, and if you're listening to this show, you are likely a fan. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to read FX Feeney's Tishan book, it's really, it's a really essential companion. If you still have a coffee table, it's the best Michael Mann coffee table book. But I just really loved that observation of these three individuals as the last ofs and being passed. Because this whole movie is, you know, these little trios or two 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 pairs of trios passing through history, passing through time, passing through wars, passing through battles. And then the the final, you know, begins with a, three, a trio uh, and, and ends with this trio. And, and yeah, they're, they're all their last ofs. Wonderful. That is such a brilliant way to end talking about the last 12 minutes of Last of the Mohicans. Look. Um, I don't know what else to say, man. You've really, you've really wrecked me. <laughs> oh man, that's uh, that's uh, I'm 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 glad that I I'm glad that I got to you. I'm glad that I got to you. I'm going to share hey, something. Yeah. When I spoke did to Cam, when I spoke to Cam, about... just didn't even get a little bit of smoky. I feel like I just <laughs> like a po- I feel like I was just like at a poetry reading and some some, some guy got up he, and said, "Um, this is my first night here," and just read that out, and I'm just sitting there going like, "Whoa." <laughs> Well, I have to give all credit to FX Feeney there. He absolutely nailed it. But what I will say is, and what I did want to share is, uh, when I was talking to Cam about joining me to be a part of this journey, um, as I did with One Heat Minute, uh, he, he shared an anecdote about uh, a couple of guys, um, maybe uh, guys or gals out there that are thinking of doing a Mohicans Minute podcast who might be very upset with me. So, Cam, could you share that anecdote? <laughs> and I think that might be the way that we can close out the show. Yeah. Oh, before we get to that, I just want to say um, I want to shout out in Last of the Mohicans, yes. Jared Harris, who could get it when he was younger. I think he's very. He was a lot. He was very handsome very when he was handsome. young. Very. Kind of nerdy, nerdy British handsome, but nonetheless, like that. For me, I did not know he was in this um, until I heard that iconic voice. Like he was about to that pitch a jaguar. That is why we to do this fight. That's why we ought to do this fight. <laughs> you do what you do with your own scalp. I actually said that to my wife, Sam, when we are watching this. I'm like, there's your boy. Because we're big Mad Men fans in this house. I'm like, there's Jared Harris. There's your boy. And she's like, oh, my God, he's a baby. I'm like, I know. This is a long time ago. Um, it's the yeah. 1700s. He's trying to get the Jaguar account. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... What, we, what we'd like to do on this podcast very quickly is just put an apology out there to the brave souls who have probably just started a One Mohicans Minute podcast. They've maybe been inspired by One Heat Minute <laughs> to do their favorite Michael Mann movie one minute at a time. Mm. Um, please stop now. Um, we're, very sorry. <laughs> we're very sorry for ruining the plan. Um, it's a I'm huge sorry. honor to be inspired. But um, we're we're sorry to be gate crashing your your um, podcast. I just really want to say I echo the sorrow uh, that Cam has done on behalf of the 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 last of the, the last twelve minutes of the Mohicans. I, I deeply am sorry. I genuinely believed, as Neil McCauley believed, driving into that tunnel that he was definitely going to leave with Edie. He had done the score. He had the money in the bank. He was home free, uh, and. 
the tantalizing and poetic and profoundly powerful ending of Mohicans and the opportunity to speak again to the man himself about it uh, inspired me to not only just talk to him about it, but to bring together my own wonderful war party of individuals to to kind of raid this movie and and to and to elevate it and to remember and uh, add a bit of shine to what I think is just sort of one of those you know maybe it's just the overwhelmingly awesome movies that we're all now reflecting on that came out of the 90s which we kind of thought on reflection was like a garbage decade for movies but it turned out it might be like one of the best decades ever <laughs> of movies um uh, but it's it's in in Michael Mann's rich resume um I was just it just stuck out to me as something that covered a completely different mode of his cinematic existence that made me still want to talk about it. So um, that's the real reason. But when Cam said, you've ruined one Mohican minute for those poor bastards out there, it made me feel very bad and also laugh. Not only did you you ruin it for them, but you're like, I'm not even going to do the rest of the movie. I'm just going to do the last 12 minutes. And they're like, bitch, that's when we're, that's like our longer episode. (laughs) Oh, I'm so anyway. sorry, guys. Sorry. Thank you, Cam, for the apology on behalf of the show. I appreciate it. Mate, thank you so much right. for being a part of the show. Um, you made me cackle and giggle at so many uh, moments that were uh, that were perfect there. The Jaguar account in 1757 might be one of my favorite things you said in the show, and it was just a sneaky throwaway that was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, but no, thank you so much for being a part of it and, uh, and getting nostalgic with me on Mohicans. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Blake.